This is an ABC podcast. Well, I left my job about five o'clock. It took 15 minutes to go three blocks. Just in time to stand in line with the freeway looking like a parking lot. Damn, this traffic jam. On ABC oh, Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Damn, this traffic jam. Now I get home, my supper will be good. Damn, this traffic jam. Getting stuck in traffic was once something that only affected those who lived close to the city. Well, not the case anymore, whether it be roadworks or tunnels being built, through to traffic jams that are happening 50, 60 k's away from the CBD. It's taking some people, and it might be you, an hour, if not longer, just to get out of your housing estate of a morning because there is simply one road in and one road out. Warwick Long, finally, mate, welcome back to the conversation hour for the first, first time this year. Traffic congestion is causing not just people who live close to the CBD headaches. It's pretty much fair to say it's causing most of Victoria a headache. It's really interesting discussion, this one, because it comes down to a few different topics, I reckon, Rish. Uh, you know, poor planning is really where we start with this, especially talking about those outer suburbs, which were, in my youth, catching the train into Melbourne, especially on that northern V-line were hamlets. These were tiny little rural communities that now have thousands, tens of thousands of people living in them trying to get out of these uh, these estates where you move for a somewhat yeah. nicer lifestyle and a bit of space and now you can't even get out to get to work, which is amazing to see. So poor planning is something to talk about and I think when we involve regional listeners in something like this, it's certainly a topic that obviously you've spent time talking about a lot in the past as well on your program and we do with the country air as well and that's poor maintenance. There's been a lot of problems with roads and a lot of... Um, it seems to be reasons for uh, frustrations with uh, time delays and getting stuck and so forth in regional areas has been because there's been a poor road, it's been crumbling, it's falling apart, and a sign goes up saying, hey, bit of road work here, you better slow down. And nothing seems to happen on that road for ages except for the sign stays there saying yeah. you need to slow down for three to six months. We're seeing these huge weights, and, and we're not talking little roads here, signs of that ilk have been on the Hume Highway for months over uh, over summer and you know people in the Western Highway don't need me to remind them of the poor state <laughs> of their road as well so right. this is an important topic I think when we talk about where we're at at the moment with creating a state that we can all live in and move in because mm. there is well how annoying and how time consuming it is physically trying to get to work but then you look at well why is that you know if it's bad design of roads or bad design of housing estates and so there's already text was that say one road in one road out there's only one person in each car that's a part of it as well and that's from Judy in Geelong and Geelong's a huge part of today's conversation but you might have no choice was because for a lot of these estates, there is no public transport. There is no functioning bus system. And if there is, there's one an hour. And guess what? They're on the same road. They're full too. That's yeah. the other thing too. You're saying move people to public transport. Well, the, that option is being taken up by a lot of people and they're, they're extraordinarily full. You should see some of the school buses in Shepherd and where I live that go through um, some suburbs and particularly some of the newer suburbs too where there are families there. They, they look to me like they're over full in some cases as well. So it's important. The other thing we get here too, Rish, mm. when you talk about a topic like this, is a lot of handballing. Yes. So you, you, different levels of government, 
between different part, uh, departments of government, between things like developers, local councils, state government, state government ministers, state government departments, federal government. Everyone wants to handball the problems that may have been caused, particularly by poor design, off to someone else. And so if you're living in one of these areas, you don't get an answer or you don't at least get someone saying, I'm sorry, we might have made a mistake. Well, the Premier himself has said, I'm not sure who this is an issue for, if it's the council for Vic Roads or for the developer in the first instance. So today... We're looking at bad traffic. How bad is the traffic where you live? How long does it take you to get to work of a morning? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. It's not a nice sound at all, is it? Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Warwick Long joining you from ABC Shepherd. And we're talking traffic congestion today. And this is something that pretty much most of Victoria is facing, whether it be a lack of maintenance to roads that need to be fixed from the floods or if it's just an ongoing issue that your community is facing. But then as more and more housing estates are built, we're seeing one road in and one road out. Margaret Paul, ABC Outer Suburbs reporter, has been spending some time, Margaret, in the Outer Suburbs, in particular in Kelcalo, which is about 50 k's north of Melbourne, and is taking people, as we said, an hour, if not an hour and a half, just to get out of the estate. Yeah, and that point in Calcalo, as Warwick was saying, it, it used to just be a hotel on the side of the um, of the Hume heading up to the north of Victoria. It's now a booming part of Melbourne's population. It used to be, in 2016, there were only 100 people living in Calcalo. That's now more than six and a half thousand people. So the question that I think is going to come up again and again across this hour is whether infrastructure is keeping up with that population growth. And what is extraordinary to me too, Margaret, should we just get you to describe what the scene Mm. is like in Calcalo in the morning and just how long the traffic is banked up in a suburb before people are even on the roads to get to work. Yeah. So, you okay, you are off. come off the Hume Freeway, you're onto Donnybrook Road and then you're in the housing estate, which is off Donnybrook Road. This housing estate, I just checked, it goes five kilometres off Donnybrook Road. Um, so, there, you know, houses on each side. There's, there's a primary school in there. They're building the shopping centre. But there is one road in and one road out of that estate that gets onto Donnybrook Road. So every morning the traffic is banked up up that main road, Dwyer Street, heading 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 out of the estate. I was there yesterday and I was there on Tuesday this week and at its worst, the traffic is just, you know, you're just sitting in the car waiting for the traffic lights. You might get two cars going around at each intersection, at each traffic light, traffic cycle. Um, and it went back for one kilometre of traffic, just banked up. And the issue is not just the one uh, one road in, one road out situation in that housing estate, but it's you're onto Donnybrook Road. You've got six or seven housing estates using Donnybrook Road as their access point to the freeway. And they're building more. And they're building more, absolutely. How many buses did you see in that time? So I think the buses come about every half hour. It might be every 20 minutes, but it's not a lot. And then they're in that same traffic. And the issue with that bus is that bus connects people to schools, to around the housing estates and to Craigieburn train station, which is the nearest metro train station. There is Donnybrook on the on the Seymour line there as well. Um, but the issue is it, it's really circuitous, it's really roundabout um, and it's really slow. So, you know, 
do you really want to catch the bus? So many texts on this already, one road in, one road out. Absolutely, I can't believe it. Another saying, just put in a bike path at Donnybrook Station, even if it's temporary or for access across the paddocks. And speaking of across the paddocks, and was you alluded to this earlier too, where in parts of the regs there might be a sign-up that says road work slow to 60Ks, but if nothing changes, right, for six months, then after a while you think bugger it, I'm not going 60Ks and people start to break the rules. And Margaret, you saw people crossing over just trying to get off this road and driving across paddocks and yep, things. I saw, that, I saw that when we were there on Tuesday. So there's all these people are trying to turn right to get onto Donnybrook Road to get onto the Hume to head into central Melbourne. But there are people trying to turn left out of the estate as well to head to um, you know, to Wallen and, and, and the northern parts of Melbourne as well. So people are thinking, this queue is not going where I need to go. And they're kind of jumping up onto the freeway, driving around onto the the footpath almost to get into that left-hand slip lane. There are there are solutions that have been promised, but it's it's pretty dangerous. And there's a lot of beeping all through my live crosses. You're hearing beep 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 in the background. It's just the constant sound. And that's not because Margaret Paul beep beep. You're so fabulous. Oh god, no, it's, it's just traffic noise. They couldn't care less about me. It's just all about the traffic. Now, someone you spent some time with is Remy, and Remy joins us on the conversation hour now. Remy, a warm welcome. You, how does the traffic that Margaret's just described? How does that affect you every morning? Hi, thanks for having me your program, first of all. And uh, yes, it's it's really, really bad because we face this every morning, even, even in uh, every afternoon, not only in morning, even in afternoon. So it's really frustrating when we are on roads and uh, like pe- people are breaking rules now. Like, you, you know, they, they cross each other and because everyone w- wants to get out of the state as soon as possible. Everyone is getting late for their work. So and and like, Remy, can you, you, know, can you describe how the this traffic, this log jam, so to speak, how it affects your life every day? It, 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 we are spending our, most of our life on road, I think. <laughs> Like we, we are like spending four hours on road, more oh. than that maybe, and uh, one and a half only in a state to get out of there. So three Gosh. hours in the state. I mean, that's the thing when you spend that long. I mean, sometimes when I get stuck in traffic just around the CBD, I think I could have driven to Bendigo by now and I've only, you know, I'm only in St Kilda or wherever it may be. Now, Remy... On top of this, and I think possibly how you met Margaret, was because when you got stuck in traffic just recently, you were also in the back of an ambulance. Yes, that's the one, because that made me, you know, uh, do, to do something, to write some of my comments, uh, you know, on this topic. So that's why, yes, Margaret contacted me yesterday and she took my interview on this. And, uh, uh, like, I called ambulance. Uh, it was like uh, I called them somewhere around 11.30 and uh, like they were not available at that time. So it took a really bit, uh, really longer. And so then, they, they, Yeah, Rumi, tell us about, it took them a while to get to you, but then once you're in the back of the ambulance, <sighs> tell me what yeah. happened then. It just wasn't moving, was it? Yeah, so when I was in the ambulance, I was asking them because I was in pain and it was going really bad. So I was asking them how long it will take, how long it will. And they were saying, like, we are still on Dwyer Street. We are still in a state. And I said, like, how long uh, we are in this state, like, uh, for the last, uh, I think, uh, half an hour. And they said, yeah, nearly like that. And they said, like, they're still looking for a way to get out of the state. On that one road for half an hour in the back of an ambulance. Yeah, doesn't it? So we have got one. 
Yeah, we have got one road in, one road out. Yeah. And it. they would have put the lights and sirens on if it was life-threatening, wouldn't they, Remy? If people are concerned, they would do yeah. that in a life-threatening situation. Um, but yes, you were still yes. in a lot of pain and very uncomfortable. Yes, it was because I asked them to put the siren on when they said, sorry, because we have a protocol, we can't put siren on until it's life-threatening. And I was like, what is my condition now? I know, and, and even with no the lights on, I wonder where they could have gone. I mean, uh, space isn't going to magically be created. Remy, do you feel let down by this when we look at housing estate design and some of the promises that come alongside with buying homes in housing estates? There's often promises of public transport or schools and all different sorts of services. But do you feel let down that this is, I guess, now just a daily frustration for you? Yes, it is daily frustration, and uh, I don't think so. In this state, everyone is retiring. Like uh, everyone in here is uh, like people who go for jobs, and uh, like there are families who have children. They drop their kids to you know schools and all. So it is really frustrating. Everyday life is like messed up here. People are really struggling. Oh, everyday mean- life is messed up. That's not good. Remy, thank you yeah. so much. Are you okay now? How yeah, are you feeling I am now? Okay now. Yeah. Yeah. Good. This, I can say like this is my second time I called an ambulance in six months' time, and I don't want to call an ambulance in the, you know in coming months and uh, even in uh, you know years because it's really frustrating. Uh, Remy, it's thank really you so much for it's really important that you share that story. Thank you. And Remy's not alone. I mean, Margaret Paul, there's a story of yours on ABC Online today where a woman has gone into labour and was stuck in that traffic. Yep. This was a woman I spoke to again in Calcalo um, and residents there. Well, sorry to pick on Calcalo, but the residents there know how bad this is. Rebecca Clark went, she, her waters broke at 8.40am. Now you think about what happens at 8.40am. That is peak school drop-off time, right? So she thought, that's okay. Look, my waters are broken. I still feel pretty calm. I'm going <laughs> to jump in the car. God. There might be a bit of traffic. She was on that one road, Dwyer Street, to get out of the estate for an hour and a half. So she she was okay. She was just thinking, you know, if if things start to get really bad, if these contractions really ramp up, and she was a first time mum, so you don't know what you're dealing her with. Her pain tolerance must be better than mine, she just was, quietly. She <laughs> was. I spoke to her yesterday. She's a pretty calm customer, pretty cool customer. But yeah, she was a bit thinking, what is my plan B? Can I can I just I don't know. I'm, I might be having this baby by the side of the road, and we know that does happen. There's a text here to 0437 saying, what about emergency vehicles? And this is the discussion that we're having right now. That is the really big concern, particularly where these suburbs being designed with one way in and one way out. There's there's a lot of small communities like Warburton, for example, that have one major road in and out that know what it's like in an emergency for things like bushfires. These are suburbs being built, Margaret, on the outskirts we're of Melbourne where... Them where the bushfire risk is still high, I would suggest. Absolutely. The CFA and Hume Council have been working with residents to educate them on what to do if there's a grass fire. There have been a few grass fires in outer Melbourne over the past few weeks. So it is a live concern that residents are worried about what to do in that situation. And what they say is you don't need to get out of the estate. You just need to get two streets back from the fire. So they really don't want everyone to be on that road heading out of the estate at the same time. But the frustrations, I mean... 
I think my mind just boggles when we look at how impacted people in this state have been by bushfires who are currently being impacted by bushfires. And we know sometimes a lot of those tragedies occur simply because of what you just said, because there is one road in or one road out. The fact that we are designing new suburbs and new towns like this just infuriates me. Like my mind just boggles that we would think about this. And Margaret, we must stress here, Calcalo's not alone. Are no. There, there are areas like this in around various cities, particularly around Melbourne, but also around a lot of major regional centres right around the state. Absolutely. I mean, when I post about this on social media, I get, what about Point Cook Road? What about the roads around Melton? And every every outer suburb community, particularly, they're, they're the people who I speak to for work. They, You know your roads, you know your choke points. And it is a real concern for people across that outer, those growth areas of Melbourne, where, as I say, it's the growth that is not uh, matching the infrastructure that's coming in at the same time. This text says, you are so right about there being no clear owner of these traffic problems. What we need is national leadership and media. Uh, Minister for Growth Areas. This is a serious problem. It's happening in the outskirts of every capital city in Australia. Planning is complex with many players, but we must do better. On one level, government needs to show some more leadership to make sure that we get it right. P.S. Great work, Margaret. <laughs> Do you want to hang with us? Because we're going to speak to an urban planner in just a moment about the... Well, look, we need more housing. We're going to be creating more housing estates. So how do we stop this particular issue? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt with you in Melbourne, Warwick Long, joining you today from ABC Shepparton. And also in the studio studio with us is ABC reporter Margaret Paul. We're talking about traffic congestion in the outer suburbs and in regional Victoria. And, you know, was you were talking about some of the suburbs or some of the country areas when you were growing up that are now considered suburbs, right? So in Gippsland, <laughs> where I grew up, Pakenham, Berwick, places like that, they were the country, right? My mum worked at the Berwick pub. It was country. And now... There's traffic congestion in these areas and it just blows your mind. But again, we're moving for a better lifestyle a lot of the time and to just not have that sort of infrastructure built in. Let's have a chat to Meg. She's in Castle, Maine. Hi, Meg. Oh, hi. How are you going? Good. What do you want to say? I'm just really questioning these one road in, one road out. It seems like there's a different rule for estate planners than there is for individual owners. Every individual owner who builds a place outside Melbourne or, you know, in a fire risk area has a fire overlay and is required to have two exits. And yet, in these estates where there are so many houses, they've only got one in and the same one out. It doesn't seem to make sense. And you'd have to say that responsibility for that comes with planning ministers straight away. Somebody has been given permission, as in VCAT, because no local council will give permission for anything anymore. Mm. They sent it VCAT because they don't want the responsibility. So, obviously, to me, the, the fire overlay restrictions have come in since the last bad fires, and yet these places have only been built in the last eight years. 
Meg, that's a really interesting point. Thank you for providing that. And Margaret, I might ask you about that just before we go to a, a, another caller in the sense that there are people even on the text line saying these suburbs aren't poorly planned, they're just not finished yet um, and more more ins and outs can be planned later on. But that doesn't help the people living there now no, yet, does it? It's such a good point. And so, yeah, in, in Calcallo and in other suburbs as well, there are more entrances and exits planned. In fact, in Calcallo, there is, um, they, they've started work on a second, a second entry and exit point and there are more... More points coming as these why suburbs. Why did they build that first? Well, yeah. and, and that's what people say. Why? Why didn't you put the infra? This is a kind of a chicken and egg thing. Why haven't you put the infrastructure in before you've put the people in the houses? And that goes for the same for schools, for buses, all that kind of infrastructure. Thank you very much. Margaret Pauls with the ABC Reporter. We're head to our next guest in just a moment. I just wanted to bring Kathy in, who's in the Gamby on thirteen hundred triple two seven seven four. Hi, Kathy. I was. What did I you want to say? To bring, I want to bring a different, um, a different perspective to the to the Calcalo situation, which is this: I had to go down there recently to pick up something I'd purchased in that estate, and Donnybrook Road was closed, and it said detour. So I sort of trundled further down High Street and turned into a road called Summerhill Road. Well, that was the biggest revelation of my life. <laughs> There's never, there is no worse road in Australia, I don't think, and I've lived through all the floods up here. <laughs> And they actually had all the traffic diverting through this heavily rutted road, which is fully littered with, you can't believe how much fly tipping, mattresses, baby nappies, you name it. And there are all these cars that had come out of the estate, like really smart cars, Mercedes, all sorts of things. And I'm struggling through it towards the estate in my farm ute thinking, this can't be happening. And it actually does get you into the estate. So there is another exit that they clearly don't want yeah. to make. The well, bush bashing exit. I know, but I don't know, Margaret, if it is chicken and egg in this situation. I actually think a, a drama has been created because of poor design. Put the exits in. You know how many homes are going to be there. I mean, with housing estates, I feel like I've had so many conversations, whether it be with Dr. Sandro Tomeo or with urban planners, around how poor design affects our livability. Yeah. I mean, it actually physically affects our health. You can go back through the convo and have an, a listen to that. But if, like Rimmy, if you're travelling for four hours a day because someone hasn't put in enough entry and exits, I mean, surely somebody has got to be accountable for that. It's like saying, oh, yeah, we'll build a school and they never get around to building the school. Oh, yeah, we'll build the train station and they never get around to building the train station. It's happening in so many different parts of Victoria. I feel like this is going to be a lifelong project for you. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of work for me to do in the outer suburbs. But that thing about the chicken and egg, like it, it happens not just with roads but with buses as well. Like PTV wants to be able to show that there is demand for a bus line before they put it in. And so by the time enough people live there, they've said, well, there's no bus. I'll have to buy a second car. Now there's definitely not demand for the bus because everyone's in their cars. Oh, my goodness. It's just so frustrating. This says, thank you so much for this show. I've studied planning 15 years ago. We were lamenting the same poor planning matters 15 years prior to that. The property industry and developers must be held to account by state and local governments. The Property Council encourages cashing in and leaving, leaving governments that must force businesses to contribute from these huge development windfalls. Well, Jago Dodson is a professor of urban policy and the director for the Centre of Urban Research at RMIT University. Jago, I mean, 30 years here on this text, it says we've been talking about bad urban planning and when it comes to housing estates. Why do we build these home, uh, why do we build estates with such poor planning, do you think? Look, uh, 
thanks for having me on. Look, um, this is an issue that goes right back to the immediate period after the Second World War when um, Australia rapidly suburbanised uh, its cities uh, to accommodate all the post-war migration. Um, planning was quite poorly done back then. It was largely carving up rural land into subdivisions and um, uh, new residents would move in and build their house with very few services. From the 1970s onwards, um, uh, planners started to expect um, a bit more coordination and better uh, infrastructure provision through the development of what we now call master planned estates. But, um, uh, and so that, is, that has improved the provision of some amenities and community services and uh, schools and um, uh, local retail facilities and so forth. But what we've really failed to do is keep, um, keep pace with development in terms of transport planning. And much of that post-war development was predicated on the automobile as the main mm. mode of travel on the assumption that um, people preferred to use cars than to catch public transport. And also it was the roads had to go in anyway, but it was also an extra cost to put in public transport. Um, so state governments preferred to just put in the roads. And as a consequence, most of our post-war development has ended up being very car dependent. Um, another thing we've failed to do since the 1960s is to co-locate employment, especially high value, high wage, high skill employment in our growth areas, which means that um, uh, those who are looking for well-paid jobs are often having to commute very long distances from the new growth areas to where those jobs are located. So it's, it's a combination of um, uh, lags in transport infrastructure, but also a failure to really encourage jobs to follow the people. It feels like it's inflated into a huge issue, you know, this multifaceted issue now that affects, you know, everything from lack of public transport, cars, where people work, the idea of the 20-minute city, and even if that exists at the moment. Who's responsible for this, Jago, do you think? I mean, the Premier's already said, well, look, I'm not sure. Is it Vic Rhodes? Is it the local council? <laughs> Is it us? Who's responsible? Um, look, it's it's a multifaceted responsibility. Um Really, it is state governments that have the greatest responsibility because the state government is the level of government in Australia that is responsible for providing infrastructure. And state governments, particularly treasuries, because um, they're the ones who count the, the dollars, um, have found it convenient over the years to not uh, invest in uh, infrastructure in the new growth areas uh, because they save money. They have to put in the roads, but uh, public transport is often seen as optional because it's principally bus services and they can mm. be just rolled out when demand is assumed to be sufficient. But what that means is by saving money in the short run, they're actually um, costing uh, communities and societies because of all the long run impacts of uh, lack of public transport, lack of um, alternatives to the car and all the costs of long distance commuting because if people are spending an hour or two in their car a day, that's eating into time that they have for leisure activities, for looking after their health and getting exercise. Mm -hmm. So those costs are displaced um, onto other parts of the um, uh, 
uh, of the social and community services. Absolutely. So, and, and Jago, can I just ask, when we hear about these communities having, you know, they've got their precinct structure plans that's all been ticked off by the council and the planning minister, but then there are delays in the rollout and we see a promised road or, you know, potential Lockerbie train station. Talk to the people in Tarnit, <laughs> right, about train <laughs> stations. They'll tell you where they could be two or three. Um, and when you hear about these delays in that um, precinct structure plan being rolled out, where does responsibility lie for it going ahead on time? Uh, well, that, that's again with state government. I mean, the local local um, governments have some responsibility in terms of the sort of facilities that local governments provide, like um, libraries and um, uh, community hubs and so forth. But when it comes to public transport services, those are definitely a state government responsibility. And um, state government, um, being very mindful of budgets, um, tends not to want to put in services that are going to be underutilised um, for an extended period. So, for, for example, a high-frequency bus service running, I don't know, every 10 minutes connecting a shopping centre to uh, a train station, which would be great for the um, the, the commuters. Uh, but if there's not enough of them to justify um, uh, the economics of that route in the very short term, then the, the service doesn't get provided. But what is not taken into account is the long-term cost of not um, providing that service in terms of car dependence, in terms of people's health and well-being, um, and the and the um, uh, the functioning and, and productivity of that community. So, so it's I the state government that that really is largely at fault. The planning minister is a, a plum job in any state government around the the country. It's seen as quite senior in a government and a, and a position of high value. Should we be demanding more of our planning ministers to effectively do better? I think we should. I mean, uh, really, Australia needs a reset of our suburbanisation model from the um, uh, growth areas rollout with limited community and um, public services and jobs to a new model where um, that provision happens up front in the development process. Yes, we might be providing you know, uh, a community hub or a public transport connection um, with low levels of use in the short term, but the long-term benefits of that are, are much greater in terms of the overall long-term health and well-being of the community and, and its um, access to employment and so forth. So we, we really need to um, uh, rethink our suburbanisation model yeah, and, um, and, and build whole communities with all the services they need um, at the outset. And I'm, not so, leave it I'm so glad that you, that you brought that up, Jago. Are there any examples of it being done well? Do, can you point to anywhere across... <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, hey, can you point to anywhere across Greater Melbourne where you say, here's one where the whole community hums, it just works together. You've got a local library, you've got a bus service and it's well used, it gets people where they need to go, you've got those local jobs. Does it exist, Jago? Look, I'm, I'm, I must admit, as someone who's um, studied these kind of issues for quite a long time, I, I would struggle to point to um, an outer suburban locality where this has been done really well wow. in that complete wow. sense. I mean, the amount of research that's been done at RMIT and other universities um, uh, in Melbourne about the deficits that exist within our uh, growth areas is, is pretty extensive and it covers... Um, all sorts of aspects from, from travel behaviour to uh, health and wellbeing um, to employment access. Like the evidence is pretty strong that we're just simply not doing um, our, our suburban development in a way that um, provides for people's uh, prosperity and health and wellbeing. Um, the government relies on growth areas for um, uh, uh, putting population or bringing population into the state because many of our new migrants end up in growth areas. Um, that adds to the state's prosperity, but um, yeah. 
there's, there's not a connection being made that uh, as we add population, we need to provide full and complete communities um, at the time that they're formed. It's so depressing to think about that, but it's a, it's the stark reality of it and so many areas of all of our lives, even if you think, well, I don't live in those estates, doesn't affect me. Actually, it does. It does because the on-flow effects affect our health system and everything. Jay Goy-Dodson, thank you so much for spending some time with us, Professor of Urban Policy and the Director for the Centre of Urban Research at RMIT. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Michelle. How depressing is it that literally somebody who is a professor on this topic and studies it, has been looking at it for as long as Jago has, cannot point to a suburb that has been designed well with those principles he was talking about. I wonder if it's been done well overseas, though, but to make it even feel more depressing, guys, this text says, my kids played SimCity 30 years ago. (laughs) When you failed to put in what was needed for the town you built, you failed the game. This is no laughing matter. If a kid's game can show what's needed in a town, maybe planners need to succeed in playing the game before they're allowed to design new residential areas. People of Warwick City loved me as mayor in Sim City back in the day, Rochelle. I can tell you I was a very good man. Yeah. David's More than in, one in Eltham. And David, you're an urban developer. I mean, can you think of anywhere where it's done well? Uh, no, look, <laughs> no, not really. Um, there's, um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, um, there's lots of different private developers out there and um, they're all out you know, developing their own um, their own estates. So I think you know the idea of these precinct structure plans and so forth. Um, you know, the theory of them works quite well. Um, the practice of it can be you know very very challenging. Um, I mean, we've got a project up in um, Hume at the moment, Shire of Hume, and you know, um, in, in their case, they had a new precinct structure plan approved some years ago, and all of a sudden. Um, they were just overwhelmed with, um, you know, applications and work from large developers seeking to get going. So all of a sudden their resources were just wiped out. Now they got on top of it and they're doing a pretty good job now. But, you know, it's the resourcing um, around um, executing on these uh, precinct structure plans can be very, very challenging for all tiers of government. And, David, just on that too, developers obviously are in – they're doing this because it is a business. So in some way they're going to be looking to to make money from a development and is that where the system can see corners cut that make, say, an area less livable? Um, I don't know that it's about seeing corners cut. I mean, it's very easy to, you know, probably uh, come up with some examples of of what it looks like um, that's occurred. But, you know – Ordinarily, I think um, you know the 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 conditions, the planning conditions that you are given are quite um, you know quite well uh, refined. But you know, turning back to this um, this example in Calcullo, um the referral authority and your previous uh, person you had on, uh, Professor Janice, I think, um, you know, I, I don't disagree with him. It is a state government um, issue, but the referral authority for that one is actually Vic Roads. And in fairness to the state government, I mean, they would defer to their experts on road and transport, which would be Vic Roads. Now, Vic Roads uh, will have um, put, to, there would have been a traffic model that would have been produced that would have said, um, okay, you can have 
so many residential lots until a secondary access is, needs to be created um, on this estate. And um, they've either got that model terribly wrong um, or the developer has been able to negotiate with mm. Vicroads, which I'd find... And maybe they are. I'm not sure who the developer is. But, well, you know, you've been I, very I, diplomatic in how you actually put yeah. that, David, when it comes to... And this is what happens in these conversations, right, both Margaret and Woz, is people get so frustrated in the freedoms or the decisions and the power that developers are given and the priority that they're given over residents and the reality of what living in that space is like. And you've got a lot of time to think about it when you're just sitting behind the wheel, right? And it's not moving and you're moving maybe, you know, a couple of car lengths forward. Um, but one thing that developers tell me is that they do actually, um, they do make contributions as part of their, you know, they're required to basically. And they do make, you know, I think it's about $11,000 per hectare of land into this growth area infrastructure contributions fund. And what we discovered in the lead up to the state election last year is that that fund contains about $370 million in unallocated funding. So it's just sitting in the Treasury it coffers. For? It's for infrastructure infrastructure projects. So like Local roads, schools, train public transport. stations, absolutely. All those things that, that, are, that are designed that the state government has that money there for and they want to spend, the, the developers want it to be spent and they put it in, but it's just not going out fast enough. $11,000 per hectare where there will be hundreds, if not uh, over a 1,000 people living in that hectare, I'd imagine, is not a lot of money, though, is it? Sorry, let me correct myself. Thank you. It is (laughs) $110,000. Thank you, Was. See, this is is where the fact-checking comes in. Hang on, that just didn't sound right. And I'm thinking as I say it, that doesn't sound right either. So thank you. And this is where my lack of maths comes into it, whereas I'm, like, nodding, going, yeah, right. (laughs) And it takes someone that's passed, you know, over year 10 maths to figure that out. Elizabeth's in Preston. Hi, Elizabeth. Good morning. Um, I've got development. I live in North East Preston behind um, Northland Shopping Centre. And it's right um, near a creek, um, just five minutes away. And there's been a 60-unit development that started and it's going up on the creek, um, the creek um, bank. Um, and there's only one street out which is Wood Street, which goes down to Albert Street, which is, becomes absolutely chockers at um, all the peak hours. And there's an, another few other small streets that lead on to Albert Street. But we're sort of landlocked in. And um, not only that, we have the one-in-a-hundred-year flood um, bridge, which is right next to the development. So if there ever was an emergency with the yeah. flooding... We, we can't, we're all so jammed in. And that's the um, thing too, Elizabeth, when you talk about, you know, being landlocked and what, this fund, this slush fund, so to speak, and you know, again, back to that 20-minute city. So if you're landlocked and you can't get out, it's taking you an hour and a half, that's not just to get to work. What if you're retired or you're not working or you're part-time and you're trying to just get to the supermarket? This, So, you know, what services, what shops, what, do you, do you have a doctor's there? Do you have a pharmacy? All of those things within that housing estate that doesn't require you to leave it in order to live a healthy life. It's more than just trying to get out to go to work. Well, and then you're talking about density too, right? Is the answer in these in these areas that you actually want to have the smaller blocks, you want to go up rather than going out, you want to be near train stations that are already there and then we bring in the traffic in the inner city to talk about as well. Oh, This is just a barrel of laughs. Then you're on really? Punt Road, barely moving. <laughs>
So how bad is the traffic where you live? How long does it take for you to get to work in a morning? And also, as we talk through a conversation like this, what can be done about it? I've been ready to blame about 15 different <laughs> levels of government or people throughout this conversation. There's got to be more to it than that. How would you fix it? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is The Conversation and we're talking traffic woes and congestion today. Margaret Paul with you and Warwick Long from ABC Shepparton. But it turns out traffic woes, pretty much as a result of housing estates, we're getting texts everywhere from Ballarat to outer suburbs. We can't forget Geelong in this as well. Jen Cromedy is the former CEO for the Committee of Geelong and longtime Geelong resident. We know that Geelong is booming and the outer areas of that particular part of Victoria is booming and estates are being built. Jen, what's traffic like where you are? Yes, yeah, so I'll pick up on what you're talking about, which is um, a growth area that's about halfway through completion, which is Armstrong Creek. That's kind of between Geelong and on the way to Torquay. And I know because people I work with, who I'm friends with, have said it can take up to an hour to get into Geelong in the morning. And this is partly because there's a transport corridor that's been built, but they haven't yet decided on or funded whether there's going to be a train line or a tram line. So at the moment, it's a real issue. And um, that, that area at the moment has between twenty and 30,000 residents that wow. they're marking it to be 60,000. So that is an absolute live issue at the moment. I know there's been advocacy to government around, you know, how do we actually get that service up and running? Um, but you couple that with the northwest growth area in Geelong, which has been gazetted by the state, which is out this sort of between Lara, kind of lovely banks, if you know the Geelong region. It's 110,000 people are planned to be there in the next 15 to 20 years, and there's no forward transport infrastructure funding. So I know it's causing a lot of headaches. And Jen, you represent the the Committee for Geelong. I imagine you're trying to show off the best uh, of the city and trying to attract investment and and create a a feeling that Geelong is this great place to live. Is it harder? Does it make your job harder when there are people stuck in traffic and stuck trying to, to live around a city if they move there? Yeah, and I'll just say, because I'm not at the committee for Geelong anymore. I'm a consultant now working on a few projects around social and economic development. Sorry, my bad. That being said, that's okay. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've got the Commonwealth Games. I don't know if you've been talking about that, but we've got the Commonwealth Games coming. Yeah, in the next three years. And I know transport's causing a few headaches because you're going to get tens of thousands of people into those four regional cities, with Geelong being the hub. So, I mean, when you talk about global investment and attraction, you know, we've got a short period of time to get this right. And when you talk about a short period too, Jen, how quickly has this happened? Because we know we've, I've got friends who have moved out of Melbourne down to Geelong to, you know, get to the, you know, coastal dream. So how quickly is all all this happening around Geelong? Because it was flower farms down that way between Torquay and Geelong a few years ago, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. It has happened exceptionally quickly. And I think this is the the, the issue. I mean, Victoria as a whole is growing and, you know, Melbourne's growing. So part of the long-term strategy has been, yeah, how do we handle Melbourne's growth and what role do regional cities play? Well, now it's coming to fruition because COVID exacerbated it. You know, people have just come in their droves and Geelong and the region is one of the fastest growing regions in the country. So I don't know if it's been a surprise, but the growth, I think, trajectory has been a surprise. So I think the thing is, how do we actually fund it and come up with some innovative models to actually make it happen? And um, I think, and I'm hoping as a resident and a local kind of person who has a view on these things, is that the Commonwealth Games will actually be part of the impetus to get some of these projects up and running. Is it going to change, I suppose, some of the, the, the political things that 
are being asked for in a community like Geelong, though traditionally when it, elections have been very tight down your way, uh, things like funding to improve the footy stadium and, and uh, tourism and all sorts of things like that in Geelong have been major issues. Is it going to be much more about roads connecting the city itself to its, its suburbs rather than connecting Geelong to Melbourne like it has been in the past? Yeah, really good point. So obviously you've got the fast rail project that's been billions of dollars that the government's still continuing to deliver for Geelong to Melbourne. And I know locally all the stakeholders have committed to the fact that we need our own metropolitan public transport network. So um, going to a little bit of detail, the Centre of Geelong Framework Plan and some related projects, we're waiting for the imminent release of those documents to actually help guide how Geelong CBD can function as its own, say, regional yeah. capital. And that's the thing, yes, once you start... To, to look, uh, some of our regional cities, the cities being the operative word there now, they are functioning like miniature cities and we keep talking about decentralisation and how do we take that pressure off the CBD and how do we create livability and that's a huge part of it. Jen, thanks for your insights. We appreciate it. No problem. Jen Cromedy there, the former CEO for the Committee for Geelong. And you know what? She's right. We hadn't even touched on the Commonwealth Games. And Jerome Weimar from the Com Games has already spoken about, look, it's going to be tricky, you know, and we're going to see a lot of day trippers going into different parts of regional Victoria. So when we start to think about traffic congestion and then you add the Commonwealth Games on top of it. Saw Point and Shepherd in the Commonwealth Games. The, the council helped launch it and then they didn't even get any accommodation or anything like that in the thing. So, oh, there's a conversation. There's a for conversation another for another time. I mean, <laughs> even just the accommodation that be, that gets built and then what happens to it afterwards. You know, and, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm so glad Jen was talking about um, transport spines and, and transport infrastructure mm. because when we talk about traffic, often people say, well, when are you going to build more roads? When are you going to build a second exit? When are you going to duplicate that road, put more lanes on it? But a lot of time I know people will be screaming at their radio saying it's buses it's trains you've got to get people out of the cars you've got to have people not in those as the texture at the top of the show said one person in each car you've got to get that person on a footpath you've got to get that person on a bike and that means creating infrastructure for those kinds of projects as well not just roads. I've just over the years I've constantly been so frustrated around our bus network here and how and why we just don't use buses in the same way as Sydney. I know we have trams, but trams, you know, they're stuck on tram rails most of the time or tram tracks. Buses could be a huge solution in so many areas if we just had them running more frequently, had them running on time and just saw them. And we've got a fleet of electric buses now, for example. You know, it would reduce pollution. This Don't get me started on buses anyhow. <laughs> Graham's in Balnowring. Hi, Graham. Yeah, look, I'm sick of these developers getting away with this. The developers should be, they know how many houses they're going to build and how many people are going to be there. And they should be building the infrastructure like the railways and the schools as part of the development at the time, instead of waiting for the ratepayers or the uh, stakeholder, the Victorian government to pay for it. And it's the state government that's at fault. Um, and the other thing that happens, the developer goes in, he he damages the roads that are already existing because of the number of truck movements they have going in there and doesn't compensate the council because the council can't pass the repairs to that road on onto him. And it, it, so when we have the conversation or the debate around who's responsible, you know, Graham believes it's the developers. 
And then who sets the rules for them and who enforces it? Because if someone's going to be trying to make money out of a development, well, maybe it's the oversight and the rules that need to force them to, to do more. This is the circle we're going in, Rich, but I am interested in what you have to say. The, we've talked a lot about building something better. There's also looking after the infrastructure we've got, right? And a lot of Victoria has had a difficulty with that this year. Probably nobody has seen an example greater than this than uh, Russell Pilvin, who's the owner of Seymour Tire Power, who was out on the roads, Rish, as we were talking about earlier today between each other, fixing people's tyres when a mass pothole on the Hume Freeway started taking out many, many cars in a road. Russell, what are the roads like around Seymour now? Are they still causing problems for people's tyres? Yeah, good morning to everybody, Rachel, Warwick and Margaret. Um, thanks for the call. Yes, they are. Look, I have to say they are well underway to repairs. It is finally seeing some uh, sort of substantial repairs, that is re- removing of the entire road, resetting it and so forth. There's still a lot of uh, traps and potholes uh, coming back last night, I noted, and if I could count, I'd have to get the uh, shoes and socks up at least. But there is certainly some movement now towards proper and major roadworks that were due many, many years ago. But, uh, yeah, right through years, gosh. that. Oh, yeah, and, and Russell, thinking of Seymour and thinking of all the directions out from there, I, I note that on the Hume there was um, go slow signs like r- dropping down the, the speed limit that were up for months just south of Seymour and, and almost got to the point where people were ignoring them because they'd driven past them so many times. The same on the road out of Seymour heading towards Puckapunyal as well and I'd imagine in a lot of other areas as well uh, too. Does that get frustrating when I suppose the speed is just reduced and, and the road isn't up to standard for such a long period of time before it finally gets repaired? Yeah, look, I think you've you've picked it uh, pretty closely there. There's still sections that uh, they've got reduced to 80 kilometres for, a, say, a two-kilometre section, which are no different to the other 300 kilometres preceding and post that section. Uh, and obviously, they've got them earmarked for some time in the future, but realistically, they're no worse than any others. Um, so that, that does get frustrating. And yeah, the majority of people do ignore it uh, because it's just uh, unrealistic to think that we're going to slow down for that. Mm. And I guess the biggest point I had towards congestion uh, is we need to, I think, rework. I mean, yes, look, there's a lot of issues, you know, forcing the entire Melbourne across through the city on one particular um, thoroughfare is ridiculous for a, for a city that wants to be the best uh, city in the world. To force all traffic through one tunnel and one thing across city is ridiculous and there's some big picture stuff. But I guess the thing I would like to see is um, we need to revisit our um, rules around work areas and things like that. Um, as an example, you know, going down to Seymour Grand through Wallen, they'll, for three or four kilometres, they'll tell you that there's roadworks coming. They'll slow you to 80, 60, 40. But it's not until the last 500 metres they tell you which lane is closed. So people are confused. Uh, they could simply redo it where they tell you well like it only started mm. at say one kilometer before because you know we're not landing jumbo jets cars can decelerate very quickly you don't <laughs> need five kilometers of deceleration but the fact is we confuse the drivers it's only in the last minute they tell you which lane's closed and the fact too russell you know if these signs are there for long periods of time we've heard a lot today that people are breaking the rules and then that leads often to accidents and sometimes really tragic outcomes where people can lose their lives so the last thing you want is 
people breaking the rules because I think, well, I don't even know if this is fat income, if they're doing something there or this sign's been here for six months and then there's the idea of do you do the work during the day or during the night. Just finally, Russell, are you still finding, I mean, the fact that you popped yourself on the side of the road and were fixing car after car after car just after the floods where that pothole just sort of emerged, are you still having to fix a lot of cars? I mean, are you still spending a lot of time out there? Oh, look, it, it has reduced because people became aware of it and they did, they did some short-term fixes. They fixed up the, the sharp edges in the pothole. So it's definitely reduced, but we still see cars coming in yeah. with pothole damage, things like that. And can I just go back to one comment you made about, you know, the rules? I think that's the problem. They need to look at the rules because, yeah, people are ignoring them because the rules are inappropriate. Yeah. You know, um, it's like the people standing there with the, the stop signs, the stop-go signs. Why are they permitted to be on their phone, leaning against a sign when drivers have to be alert if they're so critically important? Well, now so you've just started an entire other <laughs> argument, Russell. But it's important. It's important that we discuss this. That's Russell Pilvin. He's the owner of Seymour Tire Power. Margaret Paul, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Conversation Hour today. This is a hugely important topic and it's a big part of your role too as the suburban reporter for the ABC. An incredible piece online today that people can go and have a look at and I dare say this is something that you're probably going to be following for some time. Absolutely, because people notice it. It affects their lives. You notice when you're in bad traffic. You notice the road works. You don't notice when it's going well. So hopefully most people out there, it's going well. Thanks to everyone participating and contributing to the Conversation Hour this week. Don't forget the Conversation Hour podcast. Just go to the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts, you can download, you can subscribe to the latest episodes and that way you will never miss a topic. My name's Rochelle Hunt. Have a wonderful weekend. Be safe, be well, and I'll speak to you on Monday. Take care.